Well, I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 21. And one of the things that I love in television, they have different storytelling tropes. And one of the tropes I really love is called the how we got here trope. And this is a common one used in television shows. If you watch TV, you've probably seen it one time or another. It's where a TV show will start. But rather than starting at the beginning of the story, they kind of start with the climax. And something is going on. Usually something shocking is happening to your favorite character. They're either getting demoted or put in prison or somehow betrayed, or oftentimes they're someone shooting them. And, and you, you're there in shock and you say, what? That, that's my favorite character. This can't happen to them. What's going on? And then all of a sudden what happens? It changes scenes and at the bottom of the screen it says, one week earlier or one day earlier. And then the rest of the show goes on to show how these events came to be. And as it comes to the end of the episode, it builds up to that climax again. Suddenly you're like, oh, that's how we got here. And all of a sudden it's familiar. Well, I kind of felt like that preparing today's sermon because we've been in Matthew looking at uh, um, Matthew details how Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King of the kingdom. And then last week we came to Holy Week and our celebration of Good Friday and Easter, we, we hit the climax of the story. Here, here's Jesus. He's betrayed. The king is betrayed. The king is crucified, unjustly murdered on the cross. And, and here he is in victory, risen again. And it's the climax. And all of a sudden we return back to our regular series in Matthew. We rewind the clock in one week earlier is where we find ourselves. And in fact, we're going to see that Matthew takes a dramatic shift in his pace. Whereas so far he's spent 20 chapters on the entire life of Jesus. Now the next eight chapters are going to be dedicated to just this final Passion Week of Jesus's life. 30% of Matthew's gospel details these events of this one week. So, so we come back to the beginning of the week and now we've seen the climax. We've seen what's happened. And now we're going to say, how did we get there? How did, how did these loyal followers suddenly desert him? How did these priests who were too afraid to, to reach out, uh, finally they, they raised their hand against Jesus and crucified him? How did this all happen? How did it come to be? And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. So as we pick up in Matthew 21... Last time we were here, two weeks ago, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem as the king. And this was the Palm Sunday uh, sermon. And, and we saw the people saying, Hosanna, the son of David, and, and welcoming him as king. Well, now we come into the next couple days of Holy Week, and we're going to take a look at the remaining part of Matthew 21. I'd love to have you pray with me as we do that, and let's ask God for his help this morning as, as we look at this passage. Pray with me, please. God, we are so thankful for who you are as a God. You are a good God. You are holy. You, you call us to you. You love us. You are faithful to us. God, you are the creator, and on a beautiful day like this, we can look about creation and see that there has to be somebody behind this. But Lord, if you just left it up to us to try to figure out who you were, we'd be left to our imaginations. But you don't do that. You've given us your holy scripture so that we can know who you are. We can know what it means to have relationship with you. And we thank you for that. As we've come together this morning as a church family, lifted our voices to worship you. What a good thing that has been. And now to, to come to a place where together as a church family, we open your word and we ask you, ask you, Lord, teach us. Teach us truth about you. Make us teachable. 
Help us to see how we need to conform to you. And Lord, help us, help us in this process. We need your help. As we approach this text this morning, give me clarity in speech and and help us to apply what we look at here into our lives. And so we, we do ask for your help. We ask that you would, you would give us your Holy Spirit to do these things in our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus, through the Spirit. Amen. Well, I'd love to begin uh, our time this morning looking at the first part of our text today. Matthew 21, starting in verse 12. Jesus has entered the city as the king, and now Matthew has him in the temple, going to the temple. And he's, he's going to confront the, the Jewish leaders So starting in verse 12, it says this, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did... And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany. And lodge there. So here we have in this first section, Jesus arrives in the temple. He's arrived in the city and his kingly authority. Now he arrives in the temple and he exercises his priestly authority. And, and we see that Jesus begins to overturn tables and, and kick people out. And we might wonder what, what's going on here? What is Jesus upset about? Is it that there there were transactions taking place? Was it that people were being taken advantage of? In those days, it was necessary to have some sort of money exchange going on and, and animals available for purchase. After all, the law had made provision for people who were too poor to bring animal sacrifice, to be able to sacrifice a dove or a pigeon. Many towns used their own currency, so it would be important to get the local currency. But, of course, history tells us that these marketplaces, these moneylenders, did uh, rather abuse the poor and take advantage of them. Is that what's going on here? And I would say there's something deeper going on. And the way we know this is, is for two reasons. There's two key issues here. Where is Jesus in the temple when he says this? And what does he say? And these are going to give us major clues. First of all, where is Jesus? He's in the outermost court of the temple. Of course, this is where all the money changers are located at. Um, But this was also the place that was set up. It was supposed to be where the Gentiles came to worship. And notice Jesus doesn't say, how dare you rip people off? His response is, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And he's quoting Isaiah 56, 7. Let me read Isaiah 56, 7 to you. Speaking of the nations coming to the temple, uh, God says this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And as Isaiah uses that term, all peoples, it's just not meaning casually everyone. It means all ethnic groups, all nations. 
God's purpose and in the temple, God's purpose and his redemptive history, his purpose for Israel is what they would call the nations to become true worshipers of God. And this was one of the major purposes of the temple. In fact, if we look back in 1 Kings, when Solomon built the first temple, he prays this prayer of dedication. And I want you to hear the words of his prayer and how it ties into the foreigners and to the nations and the purpose of the temple for them. 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43 says this. This is Solomon's prayer of dedication. He says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So you see there the purpose as Solomon dedicates the temple. One of the main purposes is this is a place where the nation should be able to come and worship God. Now, in Solomon's day, the temple was a little different. There were only two courts. There was an inner court and an outer court. The inner court was the place for the priests. The outer court was the place for everybody else. There was really no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in terms of where they could come. But in Jesus' day, this is a new temple. The first temple was destroyed. The temple is rebuilt. And now Jewish people have had multiple courts. There was the inner court for the priests. And then there was... The next court, the, kind of the second one, was where the Jewish men would come. And then there was a third court, and that's where the Jewish women would come. And then there was the outer court, and that was where the Gentiles would come. It was also where, basically, the people who had um, disabilities would come, the blind, the lame. Uh, they, they were kept in the outer court, because to bring them in any further would, would be a dishonor to the temple. They were, they were unclean. And so this is the place where the lowest of the low could worship. This is the place where the nations could worship. And this was the place that had been turned in to a marketplace. So, so what is Jesus taking offense at? On your study sheet, Jesus clears the temple, but the financial exploitation addressed was not the primary source of Jesus' indignation. But rather, it was a symptom of a deeper issue. The deeper issue was that Israelites were excluding the nations from worship. Now, as Jesus goes on, he doesn't just say, my house is to be a house of prayer, but he goes on to say what they have become. He said, you, um, where, here we are, but you make it into a den of robbers. A den of robbers. It's very interesting. The term that Jesus uses for robbers isn't the standard generic term you'd use for a common everyday thief. The term that Jesus uses is actually the term that's used for um, someone who is uh, an insurrectionist. Now think of Barabbas or the two thieves that were crucified on the crosses next to Jesus. These weren't just common thieves. These aren't people who just stole a loaf of bread. These were insurrectionists. They were being uh, executed because they had tried to overthrow the Roman government. They are people in rebellion against the Roman Empire. And the term Jesus uses is here is you've turned it into a den of basically insurrectionists. Not that you're stealing from the people, but you're in rebellion here. And here's what was, was the issue. This is the charge. Insurrection and the Jewish leaders had been entrusted to lead all people to God, but they had taken the very place God had given them for this task and they turned it into a stronghold of rebellion. 
You see, the moment in the temple isn't just a uh, cleansing of the temple, but it's a symbolic act of judgment. And Matthew, in his account of this, uh, gives a unique um, element here that the other gospel writers don't. That after Jesus clears the temple, the sick and, and the lame, the blind, come to him for healing. I want us to think about this because here we have Jesus uh, in righteous anger, but this isn't a fit of rage. Sometimes, I think, sometimes people in a fit of rage try to cover it over and say, well, it was just godly anger. Is that what godly anger looks like? Well, well Jesus wasn't in blind rage. How do we know that? Well, because all of a sudden the blind and the lame start coming to him. The children come to him. If Jesus was in a blind rage, everyone's running away. This guy's going crazy. No, they come to him. They see someone who is loving and who is kind and who is compassionate. And they come and the children start singing out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And the very people who are kept out of the inner courts because they're impure, they come into contact with the Messiah. What happens? They're purified. They're cleaned up. They're, they're healed. And you see, Jesus' actions are an act of judgment and they're a demonstration of his priestly authority. Jesus had said previously, That he was greater than the temple. Indeed he is. Because whereas these unclean people would defile the temple by their presence. When they come into contact with Jesus. Is he defiled? Well absolutely not. Instead they are cleaned. They are purified. We're going to take a look at what the result of all this is. But before we go any further. I want to dig in a little deeper. Why was Jesus so indignant about the setting up of this marketplace inside the court of the Gentiles? And to understand this, we need to understand God's heart for the nations. See on your study sheet here, I say God's heart for the nations is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. Now don't worry, we're not going to look up every one of these verses. That's an intimidating list. I put it there just to give you a broad look at just a smattering. This isn't even all the verses. You heard Pastor Jay's prayer this morning in the Psalms. I didn't even list that Psalm here. But over and over again throughout scriptures, the the scriptures speak of God's heart for the nations. God desired that the nations would come and worship him. Genesis, over and over, Abraham and his descendants are told that the reason they were blessed is so that the nations, the families of the earth would be blessed. And what did that blessing look like? It was that they would come into relationship with God, that they would become true worshipers of God. See, what we need to see is... God's primary purpose, his primary intent for redemptive history is to receive worship from all nations. God is passionate about his own worship. And that that can sound like a very strange thing to us. It might even be off-putting. After all, no one likes a person who needs to be liked. Am am I correct? You know, people who, who just need to be appreciated They need to be adored. They're usually not fun people to be around, right? They're usually pretty petty people. Is this what God is like? And and I would say no. Because God is not just another person who says, worship me because I want to be worshipped. No, God actually deserves to be worshipped. He's the creator God. He alone is unique in his holiness and his goodness and his perfection, But also, when it comes to someone who needs to be liked, we might get in our mind like the dictator who who you have to give up your happiness in order to make him happy. And this is not who God is. You see, God's desire for worship is actually good because it doesn't come at the expense of our happiness. 
But it actually, his desire for worship leads to our happiness. Several writers have written about this, two of whom I'll read from today, C.S. Lewis and John Piper. C.S. Lewis put some thought into this topic, and he looked at a world where people were caught up in the sinful pursuit of pleasure. And he said, the problem here isn't that they desire pleasure. It's that they're trying to find pleasure in the wrong thing. They're settling for insufficient pleasure. He says this about their desire for pleasure. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, C.S. Lewis was on to something here. He knew that God's call for worshipers was also a call for our, our, our greatest satisfaction. That, that God doesn't call us to himself at the expense of our happiness. That we find greater satisfaction, greater joy in him. John Piper puts it this way, and I find this very helpful to think about. Piper says, is it loving for God to exalt his own glory? Yes, it is. And there are several ways to see this truth clearly. One is to ponder this sentence. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is perhaps the most important sentence in my theology. If it's true, then it becomes plain why God is loving when he seeks to exalt his glory in my life. For that would mean that he would seek to maximize my satisfaction in him. Since he is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him. Therefore, God's pursuit of his own glory is not at odds with my joy. And that means it's not unkind or unmerciful or unloving of him to seek his glory. In other words, what Piper's saying is God desires true worshipers. And true worshipers are people who actually want to worship. Not people who are being forced to worship. Not people who are being forced to bow down. But people who find joy in God. And therefore it makes sense that God uh, and his desire for worship. This doesn't come at the expense of our joy and our happiness. But why does God want worship from all the nations? Well, I believe that God created every ethnic group well, one, he created them differently because he's a God of color and diversity. I mean, just look at creation, right? Go to the zoo one day. Look at the animals. Do you see some color and diversity going on? Does this tell us a little bit of what God values? And then you travel around the world and you see diversity among people groups. And there's something going on there. I think God desires a worship that's more full and complete because he desires worship that, that takes on different colors and different styles. And oh my goodness, I go to Kenya Spend some time with my Kenyan brothers and sisters. You know what? They, they, they worship God in a way that I cannot. All right? Have you ever seen an African choir? You better hope you never see me trying to pull that off. You know? And here's the thing. There's ways that they worship God that's beautiful and distinct to their culture. And ways that I worship God that are beautiful and distinct to my culture. And what we see in the pinnacle of God's grand plan is when we go to Revelation 21, look at Revelation 21, especially verse 22 through 27 sometime. The pinnacle of redemptive history is that the kings of the earth bring the glory of the nations into the new Jerusalem. Notice, I think God has given every nation unique glory in order to bring it to him in worship. And this means that God desires that this glory from all these unique nations, and that if one nation isn't, isn't present, there's something missing. You see, the perfect God, the holy God, deserves 
complete worship. And no matter how beautiful the worship is, if there's one missing, it's not complete and it's not fitting for God. Let me use uh, an analogy. Put it this way. I have some friends. Um, some of you know them. They're the, the folks that run Johnny and Friends in Southern Oregon. They really love puzzles. They, build, they love Disneyland, too. So they were building this huge, big, beautiful Disneyland puzzle. Um, I, on Facebook, they posted one day. They show the picture of it completed. But there is a problem. There's another picture zoomed in. There's one piece missing from the puzzle. And this is a crisis. Uh, people are commenting on their Facebook. I hope you find it. How terrible. This is, this is a catastrophe. I thought, wow, they're really serious about this puzzle. <laughs> Four weeks go by. All of a sudden, one day I see a new Facebook post. We found the puzzle piece. There's joy and rejoicing. And, and it made me think. If you gave somebody a present of a puzzle, no matter how beautiful that puzzle was, if you knowingly give it to them, knowing that there's one piece missing, is this a good present? No, you're about to put that person through terrible anguish, right? It's not a good present. And this is how I view it. If, if there's one people group that God created to bring him worship missing from his worship, is this a good gift to give to God? It's not. Now, the good news is this revelation tells us that indeed every nation, language, tribe, tongue will be present in this worship and complete worship will be given to God. But this is what God is after. He's after complete worship. And here's the thing. This is good news to us on your study sheet, because God's desire to be worshiped is not only compatible with our satisfaction, but it's also a source of great value to us because it means there's no unimportant people groups. No matter how small your people group is, no matter how advanced or unadvanced they are, developed, undeveloped, there is no unimportant people group because God created them to give him unique glory. So it's wonderful news for us. And here's the thing. If I'm truly passionate about God, then I'm going to desire to give him complete worship. And nobody was more perfect in their passion for God's worship than the Son, Jesus. Why, why is he so angered at what's going on in the temple? Why is he so indignant? It's because they're stealing worship from God. They, they've taken this tool intended for the nations and they made it all about them. It was all about their blessing. And so Jesus is going to exercise his prophetic authority to condemn them. In the early 1980s, Wendy's brought out an ad campaign that has stuck in our culture's memory. It featured an old lady going around to various fast food joints. You knew she was going to McDonald's or Burger King. She'd get this burger, a beautiful giant bun, and she'd remove the top, and there was this teeny tiny patty. And as she stared at she would say, Exactly. I knew you would know it. This started in 1984. It tells us how old you are. Um, where's the beef? She had the right expectation, right? I'm at a burger restaurant. Where's the beef? Well, here, God has an expectation. Only what he says is, where's the fruit? We're going to read on here and take a look. Because this is what Jesus is going to do next. Condemnation is coming. Judgment is coming. Look at verse 18 with me. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. 
Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. If you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll, he'll say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's Jesus is returning to the temple the next day. He has an encounter with a fig tree. Please understand that as Jesus encounters the fig tree, Jesus isn't throwing a tantrum that he didn't get fruit off a tree. He's using this symbolically to teach a lesson. God expects fruitfulness. And Jesus' curse of the fig tree is not a fit of rage, but a symbolic act of judgment. Just as God expects his creation to fulfill its purpose... He expects the leaders to fulfill theirs. Just as the the fig tree was intended to produce fruit, the leaders were intended to produce fruit. And so Jesus continues to the temple and the religious leaders, they know they can't lay their hands on him, so they try to trap Jesus and debate. They ask him, "Where, where do you get this authority from? And Jesus poses a question to him. Well, where did John the Baptist's baptism come from? Is it heaven or from him? Now, they can't say from heaven because not only did they not obey what John said, but but John pointed to Jesus as the Christ. And so that would answer their question right away. Where is my authority come from? I'm, I'm the Messiah. But they also can't say it came from him because the crowds held that he was a prophet. They'd have a revolt on their hands. They'd lose their position of authority that the Romans had given them if they couldn't control the people. But here, here, as Jesus' authority is questioned, he asked the leaders this question about John the Baptist. And please get this. Their inability to answer Jesus is not from ignorance, but from willfully denying the truth. See, I believe this is an example of the unforgivable sin mentioned in Matthew twelve thirty one. They knowingly deny the truth and they harden their hearts against God's revelation. And therefore, Jesus is going to tell two parables that not only explain why they're guilty, but are going to explain the consequences. The first parable he tells is of two sons. Uh, Father goes and tells them to go work in the vineyard. The first one says no, but eventually he obeys and he goes and does it. The second son says, I'll do it, but he never goes. And it's obvious by the parable that the son who actually did what the father asked was the one who obeyed. Jesus is telling this to to show them that regardless of their external appearance, the, the Jewish leaders have failed to produce the fruit of true obedience. While the sinners, they, they have. And then Jesus is going to tell a second parable. I'm going to pick our reading back up in the second parable in verse 33. 
Because the condemnation of the fruitless fig tree now comes full circle. We saw what happened to the fruitless tree. What will happen to the fruitless men? Verse 33, read with me. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put fence around it and dug a wine press in it, built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get its fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When when therefore the servant of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They answered him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to another tenant who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to him, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So this second parable demonstrates the extent of the insurrection. They were literally stealing from God. And they were going to try to keep their authority, their position, uh, by any means. And we see the consequence of the insurrection that just like the tenant farmers would be removed and the vineyard given to somebody else who would produce the fruit, they would be removed as well. But as Jesus tells this parable, not only is he telling them what's going to happen to them, but he's also uh, prophesying how they're going to try to hold on to their power by killing the son. But what they don't know is this one they despise is going to become the cornerstone of God's grand redemptive plan, the most important piece, and it's going to be their undoing. The problem here is that the religious leaders have failed to see Jesus' messianic authority. They fail to see that Jesus is the all-sufficient Messiah. And what I mean by all-sufficient Messiah isn't that his sufficiency to save us from sin, to restore our relationship with God. Certainly, uh, what Jesus did on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient, fully sufficient. But what I'm referring to here is how he fulfilled the messianic promises. All-sufficient Messiah. You see... People in ancient Israel were really perplexed about how was this Messiah going to come about? How would he come? Is he going to come as a conquering king, as the prophecies from David talked? Or would he come as a prophet like Moses and teach us how to interpret God's law? Or would he be a priestly figure like Melchizedek and restore true worship? And early century Judaism had a lot of sex because they couldn't agree on how the Messiah would come. Now, some held all these prophecies in tension. For instance, when we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, the community in Qumran, they believed actually that there would be multiple messiahs. They looked at this and said, well, there must be three messiahs or something coming. So they would write about the messiahs of Israel. 
No one could guess that these three offices would be fulfilled by one person. But here, Matthew in in chapter 21 is detailing how Jesus is messianic authority covers both prophet, the priest, and the king. He enters Jerusalem as a king. He goes to the temple with priestly authority to restore true worship. He pronounces judgment on Israel like the prophets of old and then teaches us the proper interpretation of God's word. So that's why I say on your associate, they fail to see that Jesus is the all-sufficient Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. What does this mean for us? You know, a story is told of a Sunday school teacher who was teaching pre-K kids about Easter. And the next week, she wanted to test the kids to see if they remembered what she had taught. So she said, what's Easter all about? And one boy raises his hand. He says, oh, that's, uh, that's when we all get together, eat a big turkey, and watch football. The teacher says, oh, Johnny, I, I think you're thinking of Thanksgiving. Does anybody remember what Easter's about? Another girl raises her hand and says, uh, that's when you walk downstairs and there's shiny presents under the tree. Oh, Susie, that, that's Christmas. And the teacher is feeling kind of sad because obviously the kids didn't learn when she taught. And finally, one boy kind of timidly raises his hand and says, that's, Easter is, is when Jesus was crucified on the cross and put in the grave. And she said, yes, finally. Finally, I reached just one. And he goes, and when he comes out of the grave, if he sees a shadow, he goes back inside and there's six more weeks of winter. Okay, silly story, but probably not a true one either. But we see that only believing part of the truth is not helpful, is it? It's just as wrong as completely getting the answer wrong. And when it comes to Jesus and his authority, we can't just get it partially right. How do you relate to Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? Do you respond to him as the all-sufficient Messiah? As we think of Jesus as the prophet, priest, and king, is there any area where you're ignoring his authority? J.I. Packer said this. He says, we who believe are called to understand this and to show ourselves his people by obeying him as our king, trusting him as our priest, learning from him as our prophet and teacher. To center on Jesus Christ in this way is the hallmark of authentic Christianity. And see, I do see a tendency in popular Christianity for one or more of these roles to be ignored. When I fail to trust Jesus as priest, I fall into the path of self-righteousness. Yes, perhaps I, I see him as the prophet, the teacher, so I try to line up my life morally with his teaching. Perhaps I see him as king and I try to do his work, but I'm doing it in a way where I'm trying to earn his favor. I'm trying to make myself right. And this is the path to, to a thankless legalism where my good works are trying to make me right with God. And it turns you into a grumpy Christian. When I fail to trust Jesus as prophet, this is a path of worldliness and compromise. Perhaps I emphasize his role as priest, and boy, I'm sure glad for grace, and, and I see his role as king, and I'm sure trying to be missional, but no one can see a difference in my life. You can't tell me how to live. Don't talk to me about holiness. That's, that's for an older generation. And we see those who push against any form of holiness and immorality becomes very subjective. When I fail to trust Jesus as king, it's a path towards fruitlessness. Perhaps I see him as as my priest. I trust him for the the salvation. I see his work as fully sufficient to make me right with God. I look to him as prophet. He, He teaches me what true living is, what moral living is. 
And yet my view of Christianity is it's just me and Jesus. Just me. It's all about me, and I don't think about the world around me. I forget that Jesus is, is king, and he's given a mission. And I think this last one is the greatest danger to evangelical churches like ours. Too often we look at, at mission, we look at a, a heart for the nations, and think of it as some like secondary thing or something for some of those weird people who like to travel overseas. And we fail to see that it's our mission. It's the primary mission. It's what Jesus removed the priests from the vineyard, and they, he gave it to us. For what reason? They were ignoring their call to bring the nations to worship God, and he gave it to us to say, this is your mission. Look at the posters over there. What's the Great Commission? Go, therefore, make disciples. Is that it? What's the final one say? Of all nations. See, God has a heart for worship from all nations, and he's given it to us as our mission. And as our king, we are are to obey that mission. What fruitfulness is Jesus after? Well, today's passage highlights the importance of the nations to God. And I want you to know that you have a role in this great mission. To see God worshipped among every tribe, people, and language. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone is supposed to go overseas and live among some tribe somewhere. But it does mean that we all have a role and we can't go through life as obedient Christians and just pretend like that's just for somebody else to do. And I'm so thankful for Sunset Bible Church because we're doing this in a variety of ways and, and everybody can practice things in different ways. This happens when, when we give to mission. And we put our resources into this great mission that we've been called to do. Did you know across America in the church, for every dollar given to ministry, less than a penny goes to mission to reach unreached nations? If our mission is to make disciples of all nations, shouldn't we be given more than a fraction of a penny for every dollar we're giving? I'm thankful that Sunset Bible Church, that's not the case. We, we do give a good portion to this great mission. I'm thankful for this church because we pray for those that we support. We pray when teams go on short-term trips. We pray for those who are living long-term in the field. We need to pray more. You must evaluate your life and say, how much of my time do I spend in prayer for God's great global work? How much time do I spend praying that God would be worshipped among all the nations? I'm so thankful our church sends people on short-term trips that people go. I think it's something everybody should do at least once. I'm thankful for our church that we look around us and we see that God brings the nations to us. And we have so many people here who are involved in ministry to immigrants and refugees, ESL ministries. You know, in our ESL ministry right now, there's like 16 different countries represented. Some of them you cannot travel to with an American passport. How amazing it is that we can share the love of Jesus right here. These are ways that we can all be involved in our mission. See, God didn't bless us just so we could keep this blessing for ourselves. He blessed us so that we could be a blessing to others. And of course, this plays into our neighbors. Because if God has a heart for the nations, that also means he has a heart for this nation. And therefore, my final question is, as we live our lives, as you live your life, do you live with intentionality that God is glorified? Do you give God adoration, praise, and glory? And do you help people do that, or do you hinder them? 
Can I tell you one of the ways that hinders people is, is when they see folks who say they worship God and they're not very worshipful. One of the perceptions that God is a petty being who needs everyone to like him comes from the fact that they see worshipers who aren't very full of joy. But if it's true that the greatest joy and satisfaction is found in worshiping God and not in pursuing worldly pleasures, then then people should see that in our lives. Even in the difficult times, they should see a hope and a joy and a peace. So as I interact with my neighbors, do I put my rights first? Do I let things bend me out of shape or, or, or do I demonstrate joy? And do I make sure that I'm not trying to sell something that I don't own myself? These are all things for us to be considering. But oh man, today I want you to see so clearly God's heart for the nations. I don't want to be a person who stands before Jesus one day and said, I read this passage. I saw how indignant you were at what they did to your temple. I saw how you removed them from the vineyard and you gave it to somebody else. But I didn't think it mattered that much. No, it matters a lot. And Jesus is going to say one day, God is going to say, where's the fruit? And and, and folks, we, we need to be people who bear fruit. And we should pray about that. I want to pray for you in that way. So I invite you to stand, and I would love to pray for us as we head out today. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for this congregation. Thank you, full for this time that we've had together this morning. Thank you for your word and for revealing your heart to us, God. Over and over and over again, you speak of your desire that the nations would come to you, who would worship you. And you've entrusted this great mission to us. God, we don't want to, to ignore the mission. We don't want to take it for granted. We don't want to take this great privilege and turn it into a thing that's all about us. We don't want to be insurrectionists. And so God, help us today. If there are areas that we are holding back, if there are areas where we're hindering people coming to you, if there's areas where we're putting our blessing before others coming to you, God, God, cut those things out of our lives and help us to see. Lord, I pray that you would fill this church with your Holy Spirit, that you'd fill us with the satisfaction and the joy that, that is part of being worshipers of you, the true and living God. And that the world watching us would see that joy, that they would know it. Even through the difficult times, even through seasons of darkness, God, that there would be a hope in us that that would be very tangible. I thank you, God, that you are our hope. You are the source of our joy. And we don't have to drum it up within us. And so, God, I pray that that would be the case this morning for those who are here. I pray for this congregation. I pray that you'd have your hands on them as they go out the doors and into their week, wherever you take them. Be with them. Give them words to speak that would be glorifying to you. And so, Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen.